Welcome to Credentialist Podcast, your HR healthcare kit. Hello, how are you doing? Dr. Jonathan H. Westover, welcome. How are you? I am fantastic. Great to be with you. It's the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I'm here uh, for the ride and, and I'm excited to have a nice conversation. So yeah. Fantastic. Many times over best-selling author. Um, you're also uh, the uh, owner and uh, proprietor of a, a very successful podcast. Um, so you also work at the University of Utah. It seems to me from sort of reading your work and, uh, and some of the articles that you publish that you're really thinking about how work has to change and how human capital management or uh, ensuring that we get the best from people that are available how we can do that in a more rational and maybe compassionate way. My interest in your experience was firstly that it's very broad and there's not many people that I could see that you have not talked to. I wondered if you were talking to a complete neophyte, so someone that was starting in HR, capital management, that you thought had talent promise, but maybe didn't know anything. Is there a single secret or gem that you would share with them that you would say, respect this above all else and you won't go far wrong? I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, I do find myself repeating myself a lot just in relation to the simple principle of treat your people with dignity and respect. <laughs> so if you can just recognize people as people, autonomous creatures, autonomous beings that deserve your dignity and respect, uh, mm -hmm. I think that can shape the way we form and structure our businesses, the way we design the work that we have our people do, how we communicate and interact with them. Uh, there's so many other things that then come from that. But I found so many organizations who may have good intentions and so many leaders that may have good intentions, but then they set up policies, practices, procedures that undermine that those intentions, undermine perhaps their aspirations towards being human-centered. And they just forget the simple principle of just like, don't be a dick, like treat people with dignity and respect. Don't be a jerk. Honestly, if you, if you can do that as a leader, like just be with your people, see your people, serve your people, help them to develop themselves and to fulfill their capacity, treat them always with dignity and respect. Even when you're having an argument, even when they're not performing at peak levels, you will develop trust. You will have the opportunity to, to build a, a meaningful relationship with them so that you can have greater levels of productivity that will impact positively the bottom line. So it, it certainly feeds the business case for human capital management and people leadership within organizations, but it, it fulfills the human case of like, we just need to be good to each other because we're all on this rock floating in space, trying to, to make something meaningful of it. And we all have challenges. We all have difficulties in our lives. No one's immune. So let's just treat each other well, treat each other well. And it's like at least half the battle. Yeah. One of the things I've learned from doing these interviews, often with sort of seasoned professionals like yourself that spend a lot of time either mentoring or coaching people that are sort of coming to this human capital management for the first time, maybe because their organization has grown, um, you know, and they've got from the position where the founders can sort of do the basic HR to now needing to kind of operationalize and professionalize that and finding that capital management is an odd role in a company because often it doesn't have the seat at the strategic table that it needs. And often there seems to be a tension in between what employees think they're going to get when they speak to someone in HR, let's say, 
and what actually they need from those professionals. And, and that tension is something that I wasn't really aware of when I started this journey. And I, I wonder if you can kind of shed any light on that, because it's hard to serve the needs of the company and the needs of people that would otherwise be maybe not friends, they're colleagues and they're people that you have a professional duty to. But do you find those things are intention? And, and how have you found managing those uh, in your career? I think they're definitely intention. Uh, and I think largely, though, the tension is either magnified or minim minimized, depending on our overall framing and perspective on how we carry out our business. And as we think about the longevity and sustainability of our business. So if I'm looking, and, and this is partly the challenge we have, for example, in a Western culture, like in the US, we're so individualistic, we're so like immediacy oriented. And it's all about the quarterly earnings report and the stock price. So all of that pushes us towards uh, immediate gratification. It pushes us towards like the current immediate metrics, oftentimes to the detriment and undermining long-term success, long-term sustainability. So if I'm able as a team, as a leadership team, as an executive team, a strategic team to, to be taking a longer view towards sustainable growth and development of my organization and my team, I actually think that the tension almost completely goes away. Not completely. There's always tension. People are messy and there's always tension. But the longer term view that you have, the more sustainability orientation that you have where you're not getting sucked into just these very short term kind of ways of thinking of what, what is this decision going to do for our quarterly earnings, mm -hmm. but rather thinking, what's it going to do for us investing in our people? What's that going to do for us a year out, five years out, 10 years out? When we start to take that kind of a perspective, then they rather than being flip sides of a coin and having this constant tension, they become mutually reinforcing. And the mm -hmm. more you, you know, from a human capital perspective, just like any other form of capital in your business, mm -hmm. you're going to maintain it. You're going to invest in it. Um, and you're going to make sure that it's operating at peak levels, whether you're talking about property, plant equipment, whether you're talking about intellectual property, uh, financial capital, any form of assets or capital within the business, you are going to maintain it. You are going to reinvest in it and you are going to make sure that it's accomplishing what you're trying to get it to accomplish. Mm -hmm. For some reason, when we look at the human capital, so many organizations see that as just a, a sinkhole, a cost center, uh, rather than how we're actually producing the products and services and creating the innovation that allows us to bring something to market that's valued by customers and to create brand loyalty and customer loyalty and all those things. So if we can just view, I mean, I'm, I don't want to view a human being as like a cog in a machine. That's not what I'm saying when I'm talking about human capital. If we can view human capital as a category, as just as important of investment and maintenance and upkeep as other forms of capital and assets and take a long view, then it's not a cost center. It's simply reinvestment and maintenance that will allow us to have better long-term outcomes. Uh, so in the short term, you know, that pay increase might hurt our, our bottom line. In the short term, you know, that that new benefits plan or package might hurt our bottom line or investing into training programs or reskilling and upskilling initiatives that could hurt our bottom line in the short term. In the long term, though, if you're able to take that perspective, think about the impacts on turnover, on hiring and attracting and retaining good people and what that will mean for the culture and for the innovation and for we know that engaged 
satisfied, happy employees are especially frontline workers. They're the ones that are going to have the biggest impact on whether customers have a good experience and whether they're going to choose to stay. So brand loyalty, customer loyalty is driven largely by employee experience. Uh, So if we don't invest in our people, then we're because we see it as a cost, not as a revenue generator. Then, then we're literally chopping ourselves off at the knees and really hampering our ability to be successful in the long term. In the short run, it might look better. In the long run, we're just hurting ourselves. It's so interesting. And I think you've really raised, I think, a broader point, maybe a meta point about sort of the needs of capital versus the needs of an organization that wishes to be sort of, I don't want to say self-sustaining, but sort of to continue to work and improve something in perpetuity or for as long as it can. I don't know if you're sort of familiar with the work of Malcolm Gladwell, but I believe he sort of profiled different cultures and the way in which they approach work. And he talks about sort of the unique differences between Germany and Japan in particular and America and talks about how sort of the employee ownership model that's more common in German factories leads to more gradual refinement over time of something simple, but it becomes done very well. Whereas the the American approach is really one about innovation. And I think America has been repaid in kind, right? I mean, look at the scale and breadth of innovation that America has broached and birthed into the world. But do you think, again, those two things are intention, right? Is is there a difficulty if you want to sort of indulge in metallurgy or sort of the development of a car or an engine that just requires thousands of tiny refinements over time, the way that you would treat people and incentivize them Versus the short-term needs of capital, which is we need explosive exponential growth so we can hit this next inflection point and satisfy our investors. That's a big question. <laughs> there's uh, so much there to unpack. Uh, I will say that I, I actually will be one of the first to critique the idea that uh, success means continual growth. I just don't believe that. And I believe that's actually at the heart of a lot of the the social and environmental and economic ills that that the world is facing. And so on the one hand, incentivizing certain types of behaviors that drives and pushes innovation and continual growth for investors, there's certainly definitely, you know, positives that come from that. There's no question. Like we all appreciate and really enjoy the the technologies and the innovations that have emerged from that kind of an environment. But we also can't we also can't forget the the externalities that come from that as well. And so there there's definitely a tension there. Sorry, you were saying. No, I, I apologize. I think there's a bit of a delay, so I don't mean to interrupt. But uh, you were just saying I think we all enjoy the technology that we've been given as a result. And I was just sort of laughing and saying I'm not sure we do. Well, so, some technologies are fantastic, and other ones we find have all sorts of unintended consequences, don't they? Yeah. So you're right. There's a tension there. I think there's a big kind of bigger social dialogue that has to happen around that question and and perhaps challenging some of the assumptions around stakeholder capitalism or excuse me, shareholder capitalism and looking at perspectives around stakeholder capitalism, triple bottom line, corporate social responsibility, uh, some of these other ways of looking at the capitalistic system. And that's not even getting into critiques of capitalism. And there's lots of lots of critiques of that and people thinking about other ways that societies could function. We don't need to go there. But Please, uh, ultimately, it, we have to be able to to wrestle with these questions, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think the point you made about sort of stakeholder capitalism, right? So the idea that the people that you are able to take into your organization and nurture 
And to do that with sort of forthrightness, i.e. there are things that are expected, there are things that you must or should achieve, but also there's a way out of this that ends in you and your family being taken care of. You know, something that was sort of, I think, maybe more dirigeur in the 50s that has, you may disagree, but I think eroded out of that kind of mental model we have about what someone can expect from a job. And I wonder if it's made us all sort of more mercenary into our detriment. And I wonder if there is something about sort of aligning long-term incentives and saying to people, even that have a sort of a relatively, at the time, humble stake in the organization that they're at, that they will be invested in, they will have a literal stake, um, you know, typically in the form of equity or, or what have you. And it's in the organization's interest to grow both that individual and that stake, because that is how, you know, the tree blossoms. I'm sorry, I didn't mean for this to descend to a, a radical critique of capitalism, <laughs> uh, because I'm well out of my depth as it is just talking about human capital management. But I, I wonder what your take on employee ownership is. Um, and if you... I love the idea of employee ownership. And there's different models for that and there's different ways to do it. There's some really cool examples around the world of, of employee ownership programs and, and how we might be able to do that more effectively. But as a general principle, I love the idea of just helping people within an organization feel buy-in and ownership over what they're doing, what they're producing for the company, for the consumer, for the market. And I think that really can improve all sorts of positive human metrics as well as business bottom line metrics when we have more employee ownership. And I think your your uh, comment a minute ago, uh, I'm not sure if you were referring specifically to this, but within the academic world, there's this concept of this the shifting psychological contract of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure if that's specifically what you were referring to, but you're absolutely right that we look at work today. We look at the relationship between employee and employer today versus what it was like maybe a generation, two generations, three generations ago. And it's shifted so dramatically. And that has implications, societal implications. It has business implications, <laughs> has a lot of implications. And so, whereas, you know, say, say my grandparents' generation, certainly people change jobs and work for different companies, but it was much more common for someone to say, get out of high school or get out of college, go work for a company, start at the bottom, work their way up and spend most, if not their entire career at a company. So the psychological contract between employer and employee was strong. And there was a lot of loyalty there, both directions. And over the years, over the decades, that pendulum has swung so far that now we're to the point where there's almost no loyalty either direction uh, between employer and employee. And that has so many implications for how work gets done and how we attract and retain good people. You know, I'd love, for example, the flexibility that the gig economy brings to workers on the one hand, I love that we can have more distributed teams, more contingent workers, people doing gig work, people reprioritizing their life and saying, you know, I don't even care about having a corporate job. I don't care about having a suburban life in a house and a yard. I want to, you know, do whatever. And, and they, they craft a life with gig work. I think that's fantastic on an individual level at a meta level, at a macro level, there's a lot of implications of that for societies. (laughs) And I, that's something I don't think we've grappled with really at all. And it hasn't even really made it into political discourse. And so organizations have continued to see this shift and are trying 
to like, how do we make sure that we have attract and retain good people, have a good culture, a good employee experience? How do we do all that when there's a revolving door of people coming in and out constantly, whether it's the great resignation or even prior to the pandemic that was common, it's even more prevalent now. The challenge is like for me as an employee, you know, I'm a professor, so I actually ha I have tenure and I actually have one of the most secure jobs probably that exists. But outside of like me, most people don't have that kind of security. And so if I have zero actual job security in my job, why would I bend over backwards to go above and beyond for an employer who tomorrow could let me go for no reason? And then I'm out on, you know, on my own. So, it, you know, that's the environment. That's the world that we're in. And for better or for worse, that's the reality, right? I think not just that, you know, not just why wouldn't I bend over backwards, but why wouldn't I have my foot in the back door? Why wouldn't I have my mind on an escape route? Because I don't know when I'll need one. I don't know when Bear Stearns or Leland Brothers or whatever is coming down the pipe is going to hit. Why wouldn't I sort of consider my options and what's the the cost in aggregate of everybody doing that, having that 15% of their sort of mental open tabs, not on how can we make the best product, ship the best widget, how can we make the best culture, but actually how can I ensure that myself and my family survive when, you know, the black swan event, whatever it is, happens. And I think we've been sort of punch drunk with black swans <laughs> in the last uh, few years. And um, hopefully we'll have a relatively boring period for the next uh, decade or two, I hope. There's an idea that people that sit sort of very much in the meta of their field are able to see things most people can't. So one way of asking them this is like, what is something that you know to be true that most people would laugh at you for? Or uh, another way of framing the question is like, what is what are you fairly confident is going to happen in the next 12, 24 months that people are not prepared for? And I will not hold you to this prediction. So um, this isn't about making anyone look silly, but I'd really uh, appreciate kind of your thoughts. Yeah. Wow. So something that maybe most people wouldn't suspect or see coming that I think we're likely to see in the next year or two, or maybe counterintuitive kind of thought or wisdom around the world of work. That's a really interesting question. And there are just so many pundits out there talking about all sorts of things. So I'm, I'm not I'm trying to think of something that would be distinctly unique. I do think, you know, to be able to acknowledge that we don't have a crystal ball and we don't know what the future is going to bring while also acknowledging and recognizing that disruption and, and constant change around us is happening at an accelerated pace. On the one hand, it's like, no, we can't predict the future. We don't have any idea <laughs> what's going to come. And on the other hand, though, we've seen some very clear trends that are pointing to certain things happening, how they're going to happen, the timing they're going to happen. That's the big question mark. And will there be some new huge disruption that nobody is anticipating that's going to further shift things? So for example, COVID, like people knew that a possibility of a pandemic existed, but nobody thought that that was happening right then. And nobody thought that the wide sweeping repercussions of COVID over the last couple of years would have the impact that it had, right? So those sorts of disruptions happen. There's no way to really be prepared. I think, I mean, my probably not so bold prediction is just that that disruption is going to continue to accelerate and the organizations, the successful organizations of the future have to be able to manage disruption and they have to be able to lean into it and they're going to have to be able to adapt more quickly. And if they can't, not only are they going to really struggle, you know, strategically to be able to 
to continue to add value to the market and stay relevant in the market, they're going to have a really hard time attracting and retaining their good people. It's just going to be an intensified battle for talent. I mean, already I've been talking for years and years about skills gaps um, in the workforce and the need for reskilling and upskilling generational divides. And like some of these types of meta trends that have been happening for a long time, and it's just getting worse and worse. It's getting more and more challenging. And so what are organizations going to do? We have to double down and reinvest in our reskilling and upskilling efforts within organizations because there's just not the talent pool out there with the existing skill sets to be able to do what you need them to do. And if you hire someone, like if you know exactly what you need and you're lucky enough to find someone who has the skills, the competencies and capabilities to do that thing right now for you today, what are the chances that that same person is going to have the skills needed for what you need from them a year from now, right? Like that's not, we can't expect that. And so we constantly have to be reinvesting in our people if we hope to be able to stay relevant and play the game. Otherwise, we're just going to be sidelined. Jonathan, I have to say I'm disappointed. I hoped you were going to say that the next few years are going to be plain sailing and there's no change. (laughs) (laughs) I I wish. I I don't think so. And I'm I'm not sure we're going to get back to plain sailing. Humans are quite resourceful when their back's against the wall, we've seen. Um, but yes, I unfortunately, I think, share your your view of how things are likely to be managed. Again, I think you've described something that's fundamentally intention, right? Which is, we need people now. We need them to do a certain thing. And we know that thing may change. And that means either we need to change that human or change what that human is capable of. And how can someone have a forthright conversation with an employee and bring them along for that journey, but whilst also being candid about the fact that we live in times of great uncertainty? And is there a way that that can be done? Or do you think fundamentally part of what we must do as an employer is say, for now, this is a role and a safe haven for you, and we will do our best to take care of you, but we cannot predict the future? Yeah, I think that's right. I think you have to be very open about that and have those conversations. You have to demonstrate to your people that you value them. And so you will invest in them to help them get to where they need to be for future shifts in their roles and the way the work is designed that they need to do. And I think most employees are are happy with that. Like employees want to learn and grow. Most people want to be able to develop themselves over time. And the challenge, though, is so often, you know, an employee will find themselves in an organization and they feel like it's, it's a bait and switch and they're hired for one thing. And now all of a sudden they're being asked to do something else. They have no training. They have no no investment into them to help them to be able to do that thing. And now they're, they feel like they're being set up to fail. Right. And so that's what you need to avoid, but demonstrate to your people that you care, that you're willing to invest in them. They'll be more loyal because of that. Even if you dramatically change the job that they're doing over time, um, because they know that you're investing in. And so many organizations fail with that investment. I appreciate we're coming up to time. I happily would talk to you all evening. So, um, until you me, I'm going to keep asking you questions because I'm learning a great deal. But please, if you have to go, just let me know. Um, I, I do need to go in just a minute so we can wrap up. But like you said, this has been a fun conversation and I would love to continue at any time. Thank you so much. So the, the final question I, I had, and honestly, this is a selfish one. So organizations like ours that are startups that maybe don't have the resources to compete with the biggest people in the tech industry in terms of salary often are told to sort of compete by giving people those things that I believe it was Daniel Pink talked about in Drive. So, you know, autonomy, the ability to create freedom. 
how yeah. do smaller companies really punch above their weight in terms of getting amazing people to work for them when they have an offer that could be, you know, much higher in terms of pure compensation on the table? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, people do want to be paid fairly. They want to, you know, equitable pay and what they feel like they're worth. But there's also lots of studies that talk about, you know, what is ultimately the driving force behind most people's motivation and engagement and money simply isn't it. Like once you, like Daniel Pink talks about, pay people enough to take money off the table so then you can focus on re doing really cool things. Yeah. And I think that's that's what organizations need to try to do. If the reality is you can't pay a market premium for great labor, then make your organization an employer of choice through the employee experience. Make mm -hmm. sure that employees know when they come to you, maybe they're not getting that 20% market premium on, on salary that they might get at some other company, but they know that they're going to have an opportunity to grow in their career at your company. They're going to be able to work on really awesome, cool projects that are going to stretch them, that are going to push them and, and help them create the next cool thing. People love that. And there's so many things you can do to enhance the employee experience and increase motivation and engagement that don't cost anything or are very inexpensive. And so pay is what we always default to. And you do have to pay people fairly and equitably. But uh, beyond that, let's get creative about the overall culture and environment that we're trying to create for our people. If it's not too cheeky, you've generated a, a perfect follow-up and final question, I promise. But um, from your point of view, what could a company do to kind of simplify that journey to, to get them in and to show them they'll be welcome, that this is a place that they'll be happy? Maybe it's the onboarding, maybe it's getting them through the door, maybe it's a, a placemat where they sit and t-shirt with their name on, like, what have you seen that really works? I mean, reputation is king here. And people talk in the age of, of the internet and social media, people are going to share rapidly. And so if your company is a terrible place to work, people are going to know about it. They're going to share. If it's a really great place to work, an empowering place to work, an exciting place to work, people will know about it. So treat your people well, certainly onboard them well. It starts with the recruitment all the way through the onboarding, through their experience at work. And so every stage, you know, focus on making sure that experience is good and positive and empowering. And as you do that, people will organically share and you'll become known as an employer of choice. And that will help you attract new people. And those people that work for your business will become brand ambassadors for your workplace. They'll reach out to their colleagues and friends and family and say, hey, come work here. This is the best place ever. And that's what you want in the modern workplace. That is what you want. I think that Professor Westover, you've been extremely generous and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Please do let me know if there's anything I could do to share my gratitude and uh, thanks again for uh, a really enjoyable conversation. Is there anything you'd like to describe or, or tell our audience about before you go? No, I would just say thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I would invite anyone who wants to hear more about these types of conversations, not only listening to your podcast, but uh, my podcast over at Human Capital Innovations podcast and lots of interviews, lots of great conversations. Check it out and uh, feel free to reach out. Thank you so much. And we'll share that on our social as well. So um, anyone that's enjoyed this, other than my blathering, has much more to enjoy. Um, over 1,200 interviews. Uh, <laughs> so um, I hope you have a great rest of the day. And once again, thank you very much. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Search credentially for your current healthcare staffing insights.